You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Thank you, Jennifer, um, and thank you to Krika um, and the Center for German and European Studies for um, funding this lecture. So it's my pleasure to introduce um, our speaker today, Emily Grable. Professor Grable is an Associate Professor of History and of German, Russian, and East European Studies at Vanderbilt University, uh, where she's taught um, since her move from the City College of New York um, in 2017. She received her PhD from Stanford University, which is where I first met her. Um, she was finishing off her dissertation as I was beginning uh, the, the program there. But we have the same advisor, um, Norman Neymark, who did a wonderful job and continues to do a wonderful job of building these sort of intergenerational relationships with, uh, between his graduate students. So, um, and I would add, I'm gonna talk a lot about Emily's uh, scholarly work, but I would just add that she's really a peerless mentor and colleague, um, very generous with her time and advice. And certainly has, that's meant a lot to me. So Professor Grable's uh, first book, Sarajevo, 1941 to 1945, Muslims, Christians, and Jews in Hitler's Europe, appeared with Cornell University Press in 2011. The book is a brilliant exploration of how the people of the city of Sarajevo responded to their incorporation into the fascist Croatian state during the Second World War. Through painstaking archival research, she shows how civic bonds in this famously cosmopolitan city began to fray under the pressures of occupation. Of course, Emily makes much larger claims about the occupation experiences that, that people had during the Second World War, particularly in multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic and multi-confessional spaces. But she does this by putting individuals at the very center of her story. She never loses sight of the fact that her work is ultimately always about people and their experiences. Indicating the, the wide interest in the book's scope and argument, it has been translated into Italian, Turkish, and Bosnian. Professor Grable's ability to combine deep archival research, sensitivity to the complexities of human experiences, and a boldness in showing why the local matters is perhaps even more masterfully demonstrated in the book that she's going to talk about today. Published by Oxford University Press in 2021, Muslims and the Making of Modern Europe tells the story of the more than 1 million Ottoman Muslims who became citizens of the new European states that emerged in the Balkans after 1878. She follows the fortunes and misfortunes of a whole array of characters, men, women, and children, merchants, peasants, and landowners, muftis and preachers, teachers and students, and believers and non-believers who lived across the region. By following these people from the 1870s all the way up to the period after the Second World War, she's able to trace key changes and continuities across generations as Muslims negotiated with state authorities over things like the boundaries of Islamic law, the nature of religious freedom, and the meaning of minority rights. While the archival work is breathtaking in and of itself, what is even more important is her ability to connect these stories to a much bigger claim, the significance of which cannot be understated. That this story is not a story about Muslims as outsiders who immigrated into Europe, a narrative with serious and often damaging implications for the way people think about the place of Muslims in Europe today. Instead, Emily shows us that the experiences of indigenous Muslims in the Balkans 
form a fundamentally European story, one in which Muslims as Europeans were critical agents. Although it was only published in October of last year, uh, the book has already received a lot of attention and praise, not only in the academic world, but also far beyond it. And on both sides of the Atlantic, she's given interviews um, on the book in Bosnian, as I understand it, the book is coming out in Arabic, and there are also um, talks about translation rights for a Bosnian language edition as well. Before I hand things over to Professor Grable, just a word on what she's working on next. This is Emily, so of course she has this new project already lined up and she's already uh, deep in the weeds with that. Um, having been awarded a prestigious Guggenheim Fellowship in 2021 to 22, um, Professor Grable is now at work on a third book project, which is titled Europe's Legal Frontier, Encounters in the Ottoman Borderlands in the 19th Century. In this project, she's continuing her work as a careful archivally based historian, piecing together accounts of legal conflicts between a whole host of characters, including peasant women, escaped slaves, harems, pilgrims, rebels, Jews, Roma, and Muslims, to tell a broader story about how marginalized people were able to claim some level of agency through legal institutions. So that's still the exciting work that's to come. But for today, Professor Grave will be speaking about the book that I, that I mentioned a moment ago, Muslims and the Making of uh, Modern Europe. She'll speak for around 35 to 40 minutes, which will leave plenty of time for discussion, which I will moderate. So we're delighted that she's here. Thank you so much for joining us. And I will turn things over to Professor Grable. Well, thank you so much for that incredibly generous <laughs> introduction. Um, I really appreciate it. It's such a pleasure to be here and I'm sorry we're not all together in, in person. Um, uh, so as Catherine said, this book just came out in, in the fall and um, when invited to present on it, we sort of, I was thinking a little bit about how to sort of give both an overview of the book, but also um, an example of the ways that I try to sort of connect archivally based work to bigger arguments about European history. So I'm gonna try to do both today. <laughs> uh, it's the first time I've, I've tried that, but I thought this would be a good um, audience of scholars uh, from diverse fields uh, in the region um, to, 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 to test it out. So I'm gonna share my screen and here. See, share, play from start. So in 1882, a Muslim man by the name of Abdullah, who was a businessman from Podgorica, got into a fight with Montenegrin authorities about his citizenship. Abdullah was one of about a million Ottoman Muslims who had found himself suddenly living in a new state after the Congress of Berlin in 1878. International diplomats had decided to redraw the political boundaries of Ottoman Europe after a series of wars, uprisings, and foreign interventions, and to reallocate. Oh, am I frozen? Am I frozen, Catherine? Or am I okay? okay now. We're okay it was, now. It froze for a second, but okay. I should tell everybody I'm under a tornado, uh, a tornado watch. So <laughs> if, if we if we have a tornado. I may disappear. <laughs> right. Um, so after you know a series of wars and uprisings, the great powers decided to reallocate Ottoman lands to Christian-led European states. And this was part of a broader process of absorbing Ottoman lands and restricting Ottoman sovereignty. So basically, Abdullah hadn't moved, the border moved, and he didn't like it at all. 
Um, so this is an, a map of Ottoman Europe in 1850, and you can see um, that the Ottoman Empire controlled sweeping territories across Europe, and the character of rule in these different territories varied, but these all constituted Ottoman sovereign lands. This map would shift, as I mentioned, in 1878. Um, so you see sort of now Gorica is in Montenegro, Bosnia and Herzegovina gets absorbed by Austria-Hungary. And then it would shift again in 1912 and 1913 in the Balkan Wars with more Ottoman land shifting to other European states it would change again in 1918, 1923, 1941, 1945, right? You get the picture. So in earlier wars and with earlier border changes before 1878, Muslims were anchored in both law and the international imagination to the Ottoman state. So when political boundaries changed, Muslims tended to be expelled or deported to the Ottoman Empire, or if they stayed as small communities did in places like Greece and Serbia, they assumed a foreign status with limited rights. But this changes. In 1878, as Abdullah is reconciling with his new life as a subject of Montenegro, the terms of political belonging had changed. Enlightenment concepts of liberalism and liberty affected the ways that diplomats were thinking about states, about citizenship, and also about Muslims. The great powers pressured new governments that acquired Ottoman lands to give citizenship to all men in their territories, regardless of religion. So eager for sort of territory and sovereignty and legitimacy, Serbia, Montenegro, Greece, Bulgaria, they agree. Romania does not agree. It's a separate story. They get uh, annoyed and, and refuse. Um, Austria-Hungary consents to a similar provision in Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, and actually the, the British do the same in Cyprus. So for the first time on paper, Ottoman Muslim men living in European states supposedly had the same rights as Christian men, the rights to vote, hold office, rights of liberty and religious freedom, the rights to keep one's property or to be fairly compensated for it. But there's a catch. They have to accept the membership in the new polity and show loyalty to their new state by meeting the obligations of citizenship, um, which are the same as in other European states, right? The paying taxes, serving in the army, learning new languages, sending their kids to school. So the acceptance of the system is critical for it to work at all. And only those Muslims who agree to the new political boundaries can count on the rights and protections it affords. And that is the sort of argument that carries forward at every political boundary change going forward. So at home in Podgorica, Abdullah found it totally ludicrous that he would be required to fight for an infidel army if he wants to stay in his home. He appears to continue to have considered himself an Ottoman subject, even if the international community did not. He refused to join the army and he refused to pay taxes and he refused to leave. So he was thrown in jail. Now, I like to sometimes think a little bit um, sort of counterfactually, but um, or sort of hypothetically, but what what would have happened, you know, if we could figure out who was uh, Abdullah's cellmates, right? And how would that have looked? His cellmates may have included some of the other dozens of Muslims we know who made a similar choice to refusing to leave or concede or obey. They might have also included Muslims who um, rebelled and were captured. 
there are about tens, uh, several ten thousands of Muslims who chose insurgency over citizenship in the 1880s, and again in the 1910s, and again in the 1920s, and again in the 1940s. Abdullah's cellmates may have also included Muslims who complained to foreign officials. Complaints could mark people as rebels and traitors, as we know from a governor's report from Ultin on the border of Montenegro and the Ottoman Empire. Similarly, Muslims who refused to send their children to school could find themselves under court-martial and marked as, quote, rebels, um, as Muslims in Bielopolia discovered after their town was absorbed by Montenegro in 1913. Now, British consular reports would describe different Muslim men who resisted the changing of the political system as armed and lawless desperados, interpreting their rejection of this externally imposed political order as a rejection of law itself. But from Muslim perspectives, it was not clear why foreign powers had the right to determine who ruled them, where borders were drawn, or what kinds of laws would dictate their lives, their property rights, and the ways that they raised their children. So other Muslims took to international negotiating. If statehood was the name of the game, they'd figure out a different state to become part of. So some uh, contacted foreign consulates and petitioned for a reversal of borders and the restoration of Ottoman rule. Most famously, there's a group, uh, the, con uh, the prison, um, a group in Prizren who contacted the, uh, the, Viennese, uh, the Vienna government, the Austrian government in Vienna to try to kind of petition for a reversal of borders. In other cases, um, Muslims went rogue. One group of Bulgarian speaking Muslims went so far as to develop their own military and political structures. They launched a rebellion. It lasted for 12 years. They collected taxes. They appointed ambassadors to nearby cities and they refused to integrate into the new principality of Bulgaria. Recognizing gradually that the Ottoman, the restoration of the Ottoman Empire was becoming impossible, one group of Muslims in what is today North Macedonia begged the British to make them British uh, subjects and for the British to occupy their towns rather than assign them to either Serbia or Greece. And in 1919 in Kosovo, there were Muslims who begged the US to intervene and prevent them from becoming part of a new state, Yugoslavia. And they argued that occupation, not self-determination, was the only way to guarantee Muslims safety and freedom. And I'll come back to this idea in a little bit. So we have these different examples of how Muslims responded from Abdullah right, to North Macedonia. Um, and then there were many, many Muslims who were sort of slowly adjusting to new lives and new laws, new governments, new nation building projects and figuring out how to become part of these new states. And from the 1870s to the 1940s, Muslims across the Balkans in a variety of states grappled with the ethics and policies of nation building. They grappled with the meaning of religious freedom, which often was uh, Christianization disguised as religious freedom. They, they grappled with the traumas associated with dispossession and marginalization and loss. Um, and in the process, they negotiated and compromised and challenged new uh, authorities, searching for spaces where Muslims could participate in their societies, societies in which they lived and had lived for centuries. 
And in the process, as Catherine mentioned in her opening comments, um, I argue that they shaped the laws, the policies, the cultures, and the general trajectory of constitutional and authoritarian projects in Southeastern Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries. So this is kind of the big picture um, of the book. And um, again, as Catherine said, it's a collective history of several generations of Muslim men, women, and children that tries to understand what did European nation building and legal development and state building look like when told from Muslim perspectives? Now, the Muslims at the center of this book um, are overwhelmingly local, um, and we hear the words indigenous, but also autochthonous, which is very popular right now in the region, um, and native are often used. Um, they spoke lots of different languages, Albanian, Bulgarian, Bosnian, Croatian, Turkish, Tatar, Serbian, Romani, also different regional dialects. Many also uh, read, wrote, or spoke Arabic, Persian, German, and French. And people often um, spoke multiple languages, as is common in, in imperial and post-imperial spaces. Their diversity also extends to social norms and cultural and religious practices. There were Sunni Muslims who adhered to the Hanafi legal school of Islam um, and others who practiced a range of uh, Sufi traditions and syncretic approaches that reflected the region's Ottoman heritage. These communities lived in lots of different kinds of places. Some were in seaside port towns like Ultin and Bar on the Adriatic highly recommended for vacation. <laughs> um, others lived in urban centers, big cities like Sarajevo or, and Skopje, and also smaller sort of towns such as Tuzla, Tetovo, and Novi Pazar. Many lived in remote mountains, um, such as this one on the border with um, what is today Albania and North Macedonia, right? and this one in the south of Serbia. Um, which is, this is the Uvac River, which is one of my absolute favorite parts of Southern Serbia. All right, so all in all, the study includes the number of people it includes shift with time, uh, shifts with migrations and expulsions and also with border changes. Um, but generally it's about one to 2 million people that we're talking about at any given time. So how do I put this all together? I like to joke lots and lots of archival research with small people and also our dog, um, who unfortunately didn't make it till, till the end of the book or till the book came out, um, but he was there in the beginning. Um, but more seriously, um, I spent time in municipal and state archives in working with the ministries for religion, law, education, and the interior, which solicited petitions, but also engaged with different, had different sort of the Bureau of Muslim Affairs, so these kinds of state institutions, and then pairing with that records from madrasas, Sharia courts, the Islamic pious endowments, the waf, um, personal papers of members of the Muslim elite, travelogues, journals, transcripts from conferences. I really tried to draw upon a wide range of Muslim voices and sources and perspectives and use those to sort of rethink some of the narratives of European history. Um, those narratives include things like, what is European citizenship? Um, how do we understand the evolution of European liberalism and, and secularism? Um, they also include sort of more sort of geographic 
questions like, you know, how do we understand the ideological movements of the 1930s and 40s and the conflicts that took place in Europe between you know, fascists and communists um, from Muslim perspectives. And um, a major theme is also sort of the ways that uh, Muslims became understood as minorities and the, the role of minority rights and protections as a new way of thinking about people after the First World War. Right? And I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into that particular theme to sort of show how I sort of connect the local to the sort of national and, and international as well. Uh, this were my Islamic and these are some of the institutions where I visited and, and worked. So as World War I came to an end and Europe's land, uh, great land empires were collapsing, um, representatives from the great powers and also certain small states uh, were sitting down to redraw political boundaries at the Paris peace treaties. Everyone knew the international system was going to undergo dramatic change, that political boundaries would shift, but how and who would get to decide, right? Well, spoiler alert, not Muslims. <laughs> so sort of overarching or defining part of this, um, you know, the, the character of what these conversations look like in January, 1918, we had American president Woodrow Wilson outline the post-war political future and his famous 14 points. And in those, we don't often hear about sort of the there, we don't often hear about emphasized Southeastern Europe, but he demanded the liberation of non-Turkic peoples from the Ottoman Empire, uh, the independence of Serbia, Montenegro, Romania, and then also Poland, which is more commonly known. Um, and he also demanded a path toward autonomous development for the peoples of the Habsburg and Ottoman empires. So these terms, self-determination and autonomy um, become sort of words of the day to describe people's rights to form states created along the principles of national sovereignty. Now, this is a map of Southeastern Europe, um, right, you know, as on the eve of World War One, And as I um, explained before, there's, you know, several million Muslims living across this region. So these concepts, while mentioning you know, self-determination for Ottoman peoples and for non-Turkic peoples, um, these concepts and these conversations did not take seriously the idea that Muslims right, should have autonomy or self-determination, um, nor any kind of state in that form. In fact, the British historian and political advisor Arnold Toynbee sort of exemplified European Orientalist ideas about Muslims in 1918, detailing a sort of formula of the self-determination of peoples and the Muslim world, as he called it, um, in which he noted that Islam was a simplified version of Christianity, lagging half a millennium behind its prototype and predicted that in part because of their own political backwardness, it was unlikely that Muslims under European rule will demand self-determination. Now, this was not exactly right. What he was missing was that many Muslims groups would not seek self-determination in the ways that European diplomats were understanding it, but they certainly were seeking political control and autonomy and a stake in the future of their 
homelands. Um, and the framework that they were using was very much an Ottoman model, model of autonomy. And there's a, a really terrific book coming out next year by Amy Janelle that looks at this Ottoman model and how it then becomes a model for uh, mandate states and for Muslim communities after um, the Great War or the First World War. So across the Mediterranean, Muslims will form in the 1920s and 30s a variety of movements to counter European imperial governance and define the terms of their future. Okay. But at the outset of 1918 and 1919, there's a sort of misunderstanding of what they want, and there's also an erasure of their voices from the conversation. In fact, uh, a mufti in Bosnia tried to contact a French reporter and said like Muslims should be represented in some way where you know different communities of Muslims in Paris um, and it never got anywhere. So it was clear to Muslims in Southeastern Europe that the imperial post-world war post-war order was not being designed to protect Muslims equality or political agency. They had experienced tremendous death and destruction um, through the Balkan Wars and the First World War. And this violence was continuing after war even supposedly ended. Um, the chief mufti of Bosnia rebuked the post-war government in 1919 for failing to protect Muslims from paramilitaries, which he argued were killing thousands of Muslims and had already decimated hundreds of villages. Um, we know that the post-war military occupation of Muslim lands in Macedonia and Kosovo increased by 20,000 troops after 1918. So whereas war is supposedly ending in Muslim areas, its sort of territorial occupation is expanding. There were also a lot of concerns among Muslims about population transfers. Um, the 1923 population transfers are the most well-known, but there were also pop forced population transfers in 1913 and also in 1919 in different parts of the Balkans. Um, and this kind of created anxiety among Muslims who wondered, okay, the political borders are going to change. The, these conversations are changing. What's going to happen to us? Right. Now, in the reorganization of Europe, one of the countries that forms is Yugoslavia, and this is the, the country that I started this project from studying and, and is the sort of subject of a lot of my early work. Now, Yugoslavia's founders conceived of the nation of Yugoslavs or South Slavs along cultural and linguistic lines. In religious terms, the nation theoretically included Orthodox Christians, Catholics, Muslims, and Jews. And the Yugoslav national mythology, and I'm going to oversimplify here, um, emphasized the Yugoslav nation had been divided and oppressed for centuries by Habsburg and Ottoman occupation, commonly called the Ottoman yoke, um, and that these outside rulers had created feudal imperialist structures that left Yugoslavs poor and backward when compared to other European nations like the French and German. By unifying the nation, Yugoslavia would be set up to become modern, Western, and European. Um, and its landscapes would soon be filled with railways and factories and schools. Its political system would be grounded on equality among members of the nation, right? So the, the, the ideology is creating space for Muslims. But from the outside, Muslims don't feel like they are fully part of this new Yugoslav project. First, 
they are systematically excluded from decision-making. So for example, in the Habsburg lands, Muslims anticipated in the summer of 1918 an invitation to discuss the political reorganization of the region with other Croats, Serbs, and Slovenes, but they're completely excluded from draft plans for representative assembly. So they're not considered to have, you know, be a community worth having their own delegates. In areas where the Serbian army is charged with liberating territory, many Serb soldiers don't see Slavic-speaking Muslims as their sort of national brothers, though this ideology is indicating that they are. Um, and they certainly don't see Albanian or Turkic-speaking Muslims that way. And so they pillage estates and, and villages. They establish occupation governments in which only Serbs can hold power. They set up military tribunals that imprison and try sort of ambiguously defined sets of enemies, many of whom their only crime is being Muslim. There was one prominent Bosnian Muslim, Adam Agamesic, um, who was a former Ottoman notable who described how Muslims felt like an occupied people starting in 1918, and that this feeling of occupation would continue until Yugoslavia's collapse in 1941, ironically to Nazi occupiers who he would support. Right. And I talk about this a bit in my first book on Sarajevo. Um, you can see here the image of uh, Muslims, uh, Muslim uh, in the Waffen SS. So the gray shaded area here marks places that have at least 15% of the community uh, is are Muslim. You can see sort of thinking back to the images of all the sort of the mountains and the seas, right? This is a really widespread minority community um, and they are being treated across the board as sort of this other. Um, part of the reason why is that national mythology emphasized that South Slavs were being liberated from the Ottoman yoke and Muslims are seen by many to sort of be the embodiment of that Ottoman yoke itself. So the questions we start to see on the ground are how could these same people be given weapons, votes, amnesty? How could they actually be citizens of Yugoslavia? So Muslims are recognizing across the region that a hierarchy of citizenship is emerging and they are at the bottom. A prominent mufti called attention to this hierarchy in a petition to the government, complaining that the local Serbs want to turn Muslims into second or third class citizens, that they replace freedom and equality with inequality and brotherhood with vengeful persecutions. The courts, he emphasized, treat Muslims and Serb citizens differently, as did even social services. So for example, Serbs could be given state assistance to rebuild homes destroyed by the war, but Muslims were not. So recognizing that their art options were increasingly becoming departure or negotiation, Muslim leaders began to devise a plan. They combined sort of lessons that they had mastered in the preceding decades as sort of citizens of Austria-Hungary, Serbia, Bulgaria, uh, Montenegro, on how to negotiate rights and also combined regional norms of political and religious autonomy to push for two goals. Their goals were confessional sovereignty and property rights. Right? So this is different language than what we're hearing in other parts of the international community with other minorities. Right? Their language is not self-determination and national sovereignty. Their language is sort of confessional rights and property rights. 
But they look to the languages formulating at the Paris peace treaties to make sense of how they might best advocate for themselves. Minorities, it seems, could have some kind of voice in this changing system, right? So could Muslims be a minority? And what did it mean to be a minority? So at an international level, um, what we find with the reorganization of Europe's political boundaries um, and the shift from these massive land empires into small nation states is that millions of people are, are not members of the nation represented by the state where they live. And this includes Germans now living in Poland or Hungarians now living in Romania, Italians living in Yugoslavia. And the great powers don't trust these smaller states to protect and act nicely to their minorities. So they make them sign a series of minority rights and protections clauses in which minorities are given the rights to run their own schools, have newspapers, and, have, uh, and are also told um, that they would not, their economic sovereignty would not be sort of, uh, taken over or, or usurped. Um, and if any of their rights were violated, they could appeal to the League of Nations. Now, we know from subsequent scholarship that there were actually very few checks in place to resolve issues, but the idea at an overarching level was that uh, minorities would have sort of a set uh, of, of checks and balances. Now, these clauses were kind of an odd thing that complicated nation building. Um, they undermined these, the sovereignty of small states. And as we know, you know, larger states like the United States and other Britain and France didn't abide by them. Um, they were also inconsistently applied. Um, but they nevertheless were the language of the day and they were something that people could hold on to. They had a tangible quality. So it's clear to Muslims, it's clear to the Yugoslav government, and it's all clear, and it's clear to the diplomats in Paris that Balkan Muslims are a distinct collective with deep-rooted local cultures, but were they a minority? In European circles, nation and national minorities are being parsed out using language, cultural practice, and ethnicity, right? But in interwar Yugoslavia, Muslims might have comprised 12% of the population, but they did not share a language. They spoke and wrote in lots of different languages. Right? They did not share an ethnicity. This is an ethnic map that has its problems um, as, as ethnic maps always do. Uh, but you see sort of the complex color-coded scheme here. Many Muslims identified as groups few of us have ever heard of. Ashkalia, Bosniaci, Gorani, Pomak, Shahirli, Torbeshi. Others fell into more well-known categories as Turks, Albanians, Roma, Croats, Serbs, right? So they don't share an ethnicity. They also don't share cultural practices. Across the region, Muslims practiced different forms of Islam, had different legal and cultural norms. They had different ways of sort of being themselves and also different ways of being Muslim. What made Muslims a minority was not Muslims' perceptions of themselves, but the ways that European ideologies and legal structures had defined them in preceding decades. So finally, the model of sort of linguistic and national minorities is complicated by the fact that Slavic-speaking Muslims are considered to be part of the South Slavic nation. For them, Hungarians, Italians, and Germans are foreigners and minorities, but they are part of the Yugoslav nation. And they're frustrated by any kind of suggestion that they might be a national minority. 
So all of this is to say that Muslims foil almost laughably all the standards that the European nation state system had worked out to determine things like nationality, minority rights, and territorial claims. Unsurprisingly, they never become understood as a formal minority, though they are listed in a lot of the treaties as groups that need certain kinds of confessional protections. So they fall into this weird gray area of minority rights. Um, but Muslims understand that, on, that they do constitute some kind of minority group and that at an international level, the language has changed. Days after Yugoslavia signs the minority protection clauses, Muslims in Bielopolje, a remote town in mountains of Montenegro, I showed you some photos of before, complained that since the moment of liberation, Christian officials had thrown out Muslim votes, indiscriminately taken their property, and vengefully targeted civilians. Life was unbearable for Muslims in the town, and they wanted to know if they would be getting the rights that were given to them by the laws of the country. Hello? Are we still here? Yeah. Okay, great. Just uh, something changed on my end. Oh, great. Um, multiple petitions start arriving in Belgrade, the capital city. One of them, uh, and they all are using this similar language of rights and equal protection of the law. Uh, one of them actually says, could you please protect Muslims as if we are a minority? Um, at the same time, Muslims are the member of Muslim elite uh, they convene local action committees in 1919 and 1920, through which they develop a set of demands about their minority citizenship. Again, they are seeking confessional sovereignty and specifically protections for Islamic law and protections for property. Um, one group called for constitutional guarantees for the institution of Sharia courts and they wanted state authorities to issue verdict, verdicts in accordance with Sharia law. Another group asked that the new state uh, allow for the unobstructed use of Islamic legislation per Hanafi law and the independence of Sharia judges. Um, and it was not only Islamic scholars and muftis who are making such demands, also intellectuals and cultural leaders begin to ask for things like the state guaranteed of Islam with other public religions, which would allow Muslims control over the Sharia, the pious endowments and other Islamic institutions. So these little local action committees form all over the country um, in, in what is today Bosnia, Herzegovina, Kosovo, Macedonia, North Macedonia, um, and they all call for the protection of Sharia law. And one memoir, memoirist noted um, that guaranteeing Muslims political freedom in a climate where their fellow Yugoslavs viewed them as uninformed, fanaticized masses required the protection of Sharia. This belief became so widespread that the first Muslim political organization to form in Yugoslavia called itself the Islamic Association for Preserving Law. Now, when I say preserving law, I don't just mean Sharia courts. I also mean they wanted to preserve the system of pious endowments that had existed since the Ottoman period, which controlled significant property, farms, stores, factories, and used the income from that property to reinvest into Islamic institutions. So 
it wasn't just that they were sort of running um, or, or sort of distributing a religious community's funds, but they were creating the budgets and shaping the character of things like schools, hospitals, social services, right? So they were actively wanting to shape things that we might consider part of nation building agendas. So in other words, claiming the right to religious law as a minority right was not just about a confessional identity, um, but it was also becoming about civil, social, economic, and political organizing. And they win. Uh, the first constitution in 1921 enshrined a state Sharia judiciary and state laws gave autonomy to the WAF. Every Muslim in Yugoslavia was required to abide by Sharia, whether they wanted to or not, whether they had come from a part of the country that used to have civil law or not. Even more unusual, the government expected non-Muslims to abide by Sharia in certain circumstances, such as divorces, um, in which one party was Muslim, or in property disputes that might have involved the WAF. So I argue here that it was precisely because Muslims were operating as a distinct legal minority and using kind of the concept of minority, even if they fell outside of the national linguistic and cultural categories of minority used at the time, that they could make an argument for a separate legal system in this post-World War moment. Um, nation states with Muslim majorities like Turkey and Albania found Sharia law to be incompatible with their modernizing secular state building projects and they would eliminate Sharia courts. But in Yugoslavia, we actually find the state's Sharia apparatus expands um, and we see the preservation of Islamic schools, pious endowments and other Islamic institutions through the interwar period and, and actually also through World War II. So suffice it to say, this is an unusual, possibly unique accommodation of minority protections. Um, and I think it underscores to us how this idea of being a European minority could operate in lots of different ways. So I have five minutes left. I'm gonna stop sharing so I can just give you some concluding thoughts, um, but to do so um, sort of without the, uh, the PowerPoint. So by drawing attention to this example, um, I'd like to offer just a few conclusions, right? So first, a conclusion about um, minority communities. We often talk about minority communities in post-imperial Europe as groups that are being acted upon rather than as agents. Um, and especially with the Balkans, the first narratives that tend to come to mind when we think of Muslims are ethnic cleansing, expulsion, and guerrilla conflict. Um, and this is definitely part of the story that I tell. Um, but even amidst this violence, members of minority communities could spot the huge potential of a post-war moment. Um, they understood that the changing political system could also allow for a certain form of negotiating, coercing, and compromising. And we see act Muslims here actively experimenting with new political tools and languages in order to define their place in a suddenly changed Europe. But this brings me to my second point. <laughs> because minority protection clauses only gave power to groups of minorities, those minorities are forced to unify along whatever lines that the state defines those groups. So much for self-determination. Um, so for better or for worse, an invented minority has to think about itself as a group and figure out what it wants, if it wants any power. This would kind of forced changes within Muslim communities. Um, 
At the outset of Yugoslavia, Muslims had different kinds of customs and social norms and interpretations of Sharia. Before 1921, these different practices and interpretations didn't matter. Muslims simply followed their own local legal practices and norms. But with this new state system and the expectation of being a minority, they have to develop centralized institutions, standardized laws, and a coherent concept of themselves as a minority community. This pressure to form a single Muslim minority would actually encourage increasingly dogmatic and conservative groups of Muslims to become the voice of the collective. Um, and I argue in the second part of my book, um, it, political Islam is going to become very salient by the 1930s. Um, and this message of consistency and unity is, is part of the reason why. Um, and Sufism would especially come under attack by Sunni Muslims. This pressure to form a single Muslim minority would fuel so much conflict that in 1923, a Muslim paper warned, if the dynamic continues, the result will be civil war in which Muslims will slaughter Muslims. Um, and in the 1940s, during and after World War II, um, this prediction is realized. So finally, this story and so many of the others that I try to analyze in the book, I think asks us to rethink the way we conceive of how we write and think about the history of Muslims in Europe. Right. The place of Muslims in Europe is commonly predicated on a fantasy that Islam was not part of the European states from the outset. So often, um, Muslims are depicted as migrants and refugees and colonial subjects or as foreigners to Europe rather than communities that are part of European history and part of the processes of nation building. Um, but as I've just tried to show, we see that's not the case. Muslims wrote constitutions, they helped write laws, they fought in armies, they shaped curriculum, um, they developed property laws, they experienced and participated in agrarian form. They were involved in a wide variety of political movements, um, and yet very few of us know those stories. And the field of European history has sort of collectively erased those narratives. Um, and so my book offers a method and an approach to try to correct that and sort of rewrite European history by using Muslim perspectives um, and hopefully to help rethink in some of the presumptions um, of European history itself.